To LaFontaine, he gets tripped up, gets it to May, and over the line, he's May going in on goal, he shoots, he Hey now, hey now everybody, it is Friday night, well early Friday morning I should say, late Thursday night, August 18th, 2023, this is the Sportscasters, season 13, episode 16. A super exciting show for you today, Joe Piznanski will be on the show, he was on the 6th episode of the sportscasters way back in 2011 and i always said that that was maybe the most important booking in sportscasters history because once we got joe pizdanski who was the writer of the year the sports writer of the year that at that time we could get anyone it certainly legitimized who we were and he's been on many times since uh through the paterno saga through all of his other books that he's written and we've promoted, and he's here to promote another one and maybe the best one he's ever written, Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments by Joe Piznanski, and that will be after the book club. Uh, Because the first interview is one I can't wait for you to hear. I recorded it on Wednesday, and anyone who listens to this show Uh, knows that I am a huge fan of the Howard Stern Show. And you know that I only listen really to the current... I don't listen to the current episodes. I only listen to the catalog. And when you think about the catalog of Stern Show, it's usually split into two categories, right? There's the Artie years and there's the Jackie years. Well, back in 2013 when Artie Lang was promoting his second book, I was lucky enough to have Artie Lang on the show. And tonight, I'm lucky enough to have the one and only Jackie Martling on the show today. Jackie, the joke man Martling, who was with the show from, I believe, 1983 or so, right up until he left the show in 2001 Um, over a contract dispute. Obviously, was the end of uh, Jackie and Stern Show. We'll talk about that. But it's really an unbelievable hour. Uh, We go everywhere with Jackie. It's really fun. He really enjoyed it. He wrote back to me after and thanked me for the interview. And I can't wait for you to hear it. And that's next. But first things first. Sad news. Sad news here in Buffalo tonight. Uh, We have learned about the passing of the great Rick Jenneret. Um, Anyone who grew up in Buffalo, you know, he's the voice of your childhood or however you want to put it. Um, and we have a few statements I'll read first. Uh, the original statement on behalf of the Generat family. It is with extreme sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved husband, father, grandfather, and brother, Rick Generat, Hall of Fame broadcaster for the Buffalo Sabres. He died on August 17th, 2023, 
with his family by his side after a two-year battle with multiple organ failures. He will be loved forever. Uh, Buffalo Sabres owner Terry Pagula had this to say. Rick was indeed a very special and very loved man to and by all who knew him and listened to him. His magic and his command, how glad I am to have known him. How lucky we were all to have been around him and to have listened to him. Rick Jenner's mark on Sabres history extends far beyond the broadcast booth, and we will miss him dearly. I extend my deepest condolences to Sandra, Rick's family, friends, and all that were loved by him. And finally, the Sabres GM, Kevin Adams, says, Growing up in Buffalo, Rick Jenneret was not just the voice of the Sabres. He was the voice for our city. He helped foster my love of hockey along with so many others. Beyond the booth, Rick was an incredible man that was loved by all. His wit and humor was unmatched. We were all lucky to have known him. I'm heartbroken by his passing and send my condolences to his wife, Sandra, and all his family and friends. May he rest in peace. You know, we live in an era where everyone's a goat. Everyone's the greatest of all time. Everyone gets the little icon, the little emoji in the tweet, right? But this is a true goat. This is a true legend, a true icon. You know, he spent 51 years calling Sabres games. 51 years. First in radio and then in 1995, he moved to television where he did television and radio. You know, he was there for the ups and downs, the Stanley Cup runs in the 70s and the late 90s and the early 2000s and, of course, the playoff drought that ended his career. And here's my favorite RJ story because this is just this is just what it was like to grow up in Buffalo knowing that he was calling the games. My dad and I went to the May Day game. I had, I had made my first communion. And as a present, we went down the day of the game and got standing room only tickets. And I remember I was sitting down on the top step of the oranges in the old odd when the goal was scored. And I threw a few M&Ms up into the air that I had gotten in between the third period and overtime. It was the first time that the Sabres had moved on to the second round of the playoffs basically in my lifetime. And as we walked out of the building, as we walked back to our car, I remember turning to my dad and say, I cannot wait to hear Jenneret's call of that goal. And he said back, yeah, I'm sure it was awesome. And I remember we drove home in the car, and we waited, and we waited, and finally like two blocks from home it played. And I can remember my dad leaning over and turning up the radio just a little bit and listening to the iconic call that we played at the beginning of the show. And he delivered. And he over-delivered, and he did it every time. And I am so lucky, someone who admires sportscasters, someone who would grow up to create a podcast called The Sportscasters, to live in a city where we had not just Rick Jenneret, but also Ted Darling calling hockey games and uh, Van Miller calling football games. Uh, truly blessed to live here. And uh, Rick Jenneret, is a symbol of my youth, a symbol of my love of hockey. You know, I tell the story of how I became a Saints fan because I wanted to listen to a Sabres game on the radio one Sunday, and the family wanted to watch the Bills game. Well, you know who was calling that game on the radio? It was Rick Jenneret. He was always the voice. He was the voice of reason. 
um, excitement, just an unbelievable broadcaster who's meant so much to the city and our identity, and it's a sad day, a sad night. It'll be a sad morning and a sad weekend without him. But we are better to have lived, and I was able to have lived in 41 of the 51 years he called Sabres games. And I loved everyone he called. And I'm so blessed to have lived here and lived it. And thank you to RJ. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Jackie Marlin. Our first guest today is from Long Island, New York. He's a graduate of Michigan State University. He's a stand-up comedian who's most known for his long run on the Howard Stern Show. He's got a new documentary out called The Joke Man, and he's here to promote it today. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the very first time to Jackie, the Joke Man, Martling. Hey, Jackie, what's up? Hello there. Welcome. <laughs> I appreciate Thank this. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad to do it. I don't. I don't think I know you. I don't know if, how well you know me. I, I don't know, you know very anything. Well. <laughs> but I'm doing everything I can to promote. Uh, yeah. The the uh, documentary, which is it's it's killing people. Everybody's loving it, so I'm very very excited, and I'm so proud of it. So uh, so thank you for for whatever we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely loved it, um, Jackie. I've been a fan since 1994 or so. Right, uh, it's right at the sweet spot of the show. Yep, and I've listened basically every day since. Um, I don't listen to new shows anymore. I stopped li- listening to new shows around 2012 or 13. So uh, when you say you listen every day, you mean you go back on YouTube or wherever and yeah, find something? I have a ton of archives on my phone. I have, and I have them different ways. Like I have full shows and full years. And I also have like compilations and playlists. So I have a bunch of different stuff and I just kind of rotate through. I, I cannot to this day believe, I mean, that's wild, but I can't believe how many of you there are. So many people have so many shows logged in. I thought yeah. people were just going back and, and um, going on uh, YouTube or wherever. But it turns out so many people have all these archives and they share them. Yep. I mean, the, the fan base is huge, which is so good for my documentary because that that's the exact people that love my documentary are the people that were big fans during the 90s, you know. Yeah, and Jackie, where I, where I like meet with people to trade and, and acquire this stuff, everyone's talking about how much they love the documentary. Oh, that's so. Oh, yeah. that's great to hear. Yeah. Oh man, that is great, great, great to hear. You know what? You could do me a huge favor if it, you'd send me an email, sure, and just tell me that so I could show the producer and yeah. the editor. Because we don't know. You know, I know we're hoping to get a lot of word of mouth, and I'm thinking, you know what? It's got to be traveling around in stern circles. It is. You know, I'm sure the newer fans. You know. You know, there's all kinds of stuff, you know. Jackie stinks. The show was terrible when Jackie was on. What? Party was crummy. You know, 
the stern the sternies that that don't like me are are very active on these some of these platforms but then i talk to people that get into the whole meat of what the show was all about and it's a whole different world so to hear you say that is just great you know and I think those people, Jackie, are the people who just hate everything. And you're like, are you really a fan? Because I don't even know what you like. You know what I mean? I think those are the people you're talking about. You know, people. Right. And I don't know, know if they've even heard the shows from the 90s or yeah. whether they would even bother. They're the kind of people that'll write a bad review of my documentary without and, ever seeing not it. Not watch it. Yep. Exactly. The, All right, enough negative. Enough yeah, negative. No, I, and I want to go full positive. Um, now, tell me about you. you you're called sports sportscasters. Yeah, but you're not pure sportscasting. Well, I've always sort of interviewed people who talk about the sports, right? And that evolved about well, who cares if they don't necessarily talk about sports? What you know, anyone in the media, almost. You know what I mean? And then it sort of evolved to you know what? I'm just going to talk about whatever I want and. um there's a there's a, a a famous baseball well I don't know if it's famous whatever a baseball writer named Jeff Passan, and uh, he says it's like the Wayne's World of sports podcasts. It's kind of you know down in my extra bedroom here just and it's been it's been a cult hit. I sent you the article that Sports Illustrated wrote about it, and um, you know people who listen to it love it. It's not you know the biggest podcast in the world, but I do about two to six thousand downloads a week depending on the guests and uh, have a lot of fun. So. Um, it's an well, Artie. Artie was here. Um, was on when he was promoting one of his books. Anthony Kumi has been on. So I've gotten a lot of people from radio that I I love to talk to. And and as soon as the documentary came out, I was like, I'm going to try to get Jackie. I know he's going to be promoting. So yeah, and, and you know, and I love uh, Anthony and I love Artie, and you know, all of them. You know, it's such an accumulation of the weirdest people, uh, not weird people, but such a strange combination, such an eclectic combination of people on the documentary. It's it's wild, you know. Yeah, Willie Nelson, you know, uh, Mark Cuban, <laughs> Art, you know, Artie. Obviously, how, can I ask you this? How new is that Artie interview? How do I what? How new? Because I know you said you did it last. That you guys were waiting for Artie. Do you know when that was recorded in terms of? You know, um, a year ago, two years ago, six months. I, I was just wondering. You know what? I I don't know. I'm sure Ian knows, but we, you know, he was trying. Artie was all about being into the documentary, in, being in the documentary, but it was really tough to to connect with him. And then he got in trouble, and then he wound up in the hospital and wound right. up in rehab. Yeah. And we thought, oh, well, that ship sailed. But the documentary took so long to get together that Artie was out and then out of rehab and in good shape again. And Ian was able to, Ian Carr, the producer director, was able to hook up with him. And Artie's one of the best things in the documentary. You know, I'd say it was like probably, ah, you know, maybe a year and a half ago. The, the reason being that when the documentary was completely done and ready to go and you get distribution, it takes another six or seven months right. before it's actually in in the line. So I, I think they picked it up in December, and it took till now for it to be on, you know, iTunes and Amazon yep. and all those places. It's on a lot of different platforms, and I, I tell people the same plug to find where it's where it's available. You go to jokemanmovie.com, jokemanmovie.com, and it gives all the different places where it's available. You know, and it's like it's like three ninety nine or four ninety nine. So you know. 
the, the, the most common thing I'm getting from people in emails, God, that's the best four bucks I spent in the last five years. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. It's less than a Starbucks now in 2023. <laughs> Jackie, you know the way I've always looked at it, and I know there's people that are Artie guys and there's people that are Jackie guys. I get it. But for me, it's kind of been like Van Halen. Like, I like the Sammy Hagar stuff, and I like the David Lee Roth stuff, and that's always how I've been about the two eras. You know, I love Artie. I love Jackie. I told you I listened yeah, to... Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. No, you, you, never you can, need to pick know, a side. You know, you can like John, and you can like Paul, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I've never understood that kind of the rivalry of it or whatever, uh, but it's a beautiful thing for fans, I think, when we see Artie in your documentary, and we, we know that you guys have, like, a connection. It makes us feel good as fans i think because and like opie and anthony's example of this people want them to people want the people we hear on the radio every day for whatever reason we want to believe that they care and love each other we know in opie and anthony's situation it didn't work out so it's touching when we see that with you and Hardy. but on the other side and again i want to go super positive so this is the last even negative at all thing we'll say but did it hurt you as much as it hurt us to not see anyone else from Sturger. I know you said it beautifully in the film that, you know, you're friends with everybody in your life, but this one small group of people, I know you've had time to think about it. Do you, do you understand? Like, why, why would it hurt anyone for anyone on that show to spend five minutes and talk about your legacy on the show <clears throat> or um, whatever? I, I'm sure it just trickled down. Like they wouldn't, it sounds a little ominous, but I don't think they would dare be in the documentary because who knows what they would get asked and i don't think they could answer uh, honestly you know that yeah. i mean and nothing against and and you know i just i i don't understand i i know howard wouldn't have done it because then and maybe rightfully so then the documentary would have been all about him and people would have would have watched it just because he's in it and who I don't really know, but I don't. I don't. I didn't even ask him. I didn't. I didn't even put him in that odd situation. You know, it's. Uh, and I kind of understand Howard. It's like Fred. You know, like Fred and you were teammates for so long, and love to get some perspective there. You know, or you know, like well, I can understand the whole, Howard almost. But the whole deal with me, you know, asking for more money, as I wanted. You know, it, it was more about acknowledgement. You know, I didn't want any more uh, headline, you know, you know, Jackie's great or any crap. I just wanted to be paid for what I was doing. And what I was doing was incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And um, and it was it wasn't being I didn't feel it was being acknowledged, even though I was making a lot of money. And of course, so many fans don't understand that. Like, wow, you're making six hundred thousand dollars. Just shut up and take the money. But it ain't that simple. And it was really, you know, and it was really a tough situation. But I understand, you know, Gary and Fred and Robin, not, you know, you know, because then they would have been probably would have had to talk about it on the air and that would have given me promotion. I'm sure Howard has never even mentioned it on the radio. I don't know, but I, I imagine I would imagine somebody called. You know, I don't even know if they take phone calls. I don't, I don't think know anything so. about it. I don't you trust know, anything so. on that show now. It's so produced you know. and fake. Uh you, you say something really interesting in the doc. You talk about how when you left the show in the six months after, you know, you got divorced, you became sober, you know, you, kind of everything in your life changed. Did you ever think if that stuff would have happened six months before uh, the Vegas trip, um, 
do you think maybe it would have been different? What you, what Vegas trip? I don't know. So what like you, mean. you guys went out to Vegas. That was one of the, the last things you did before you left, right? Like you were still doing the show at the beginning of the year, like in January. You guys went away for a week of shows, and you came back. And oh, much- I, I, didn't, I didn't even remember. Uh, I, I know we went to Las Vegas. I didn't realize it was right before I left. Yeah, it was I pretty just much know right the before. last show I did was Detroit. But um, I don't understand. What, what's, so the, what's the question? You say in the documentary that when you left the show, a few huge things happened in your life, right? Like you became divorced. No, you became they, sober. Were all, they were all... They were all... Uh, it was a perfect storm. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, well, Nancy left you when you lost your job. The truth of it is Nancy and I were kind of cohabitating. Right. You know, we were kind of divorced for a couple of years in our heads. I mean, we still love each other. Each other. She's still one of my best friends in the world. And she's great but, on uh, the dock, too. She's great on it, too. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but I, I was working so hard and then making so much money on the weekends doing stand-up that we literally didn't have time to split up or get divorced or, or look for another house. And, you know, so that, and I, I had always known that at some point I really, I really thought I had to stop drinking. I didn't know how much of a problem it was or it wasn't, but there's no way I would have stopped drinking while I was still on the show because mm-hmm. if I didn't have some kind of reward, I would have jumped off a building Right. and, uh, and everything just happened the way it happened. And it was, it was very tough. But it was like a, a rite of passage that I really had to go through, you know. And uh, and the, the thing I really missed, I didn't, you know, the money, the fame, all that crap. Who could care less? But I really missed uh, sitting in that room and laughing for four hours. You don't realize what a what an anomaly that is. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just go and laugh with other people when I leave, you know. And meanwhile, that that situation just not only doesn't exist. It doesn't exist on other radio stations. It doesn't exist on other television shows. You know, it was such an odd thing we had that was just so, so great. And and the fact that Howard let it go for a few dollars makes me think that it had nothing to do with money. And, uh, you know, who, who knows? I, I would love to know what really went on or goes on in his head. But right. but that ship sailed, and, I, you know, I made my... I made my decision and I lived with it. And after a while I said, geez, I would really love to be back there doing that again. But I understood that the door was closed. I mean, enough time had gone by, you know, so we, you know, what happened, happened. People are like, Oh man, you'd be so rich. Now you'd be so rich. I am rich. I have no money, but I live on the water and I swim every day and I got a beautiful girlfriend and I got great friends. You know, can I buy a house in Malibu or can I buy a Porsche? No, but I wouldn't have if I had a billion dollars, you know, and I'm doing these stupid shows. (laughs) But if I had a billion dollars, I'd still be doing these stupid stand up. I just, you know, that's what you do. I never let go of that ever when I was on the show, you know? Yeah. I want to ask you, I probably should have done this first a little out of order, but in the documentary, you talk about your time at Michigan State and how you did gymnastics there, and there's unbelievable footage. I was curious, did you get recruited for the purpose of gymnastics at Michigan no, State? No, 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 no. I, was, <clears throat> I wasn't very good. That, that footage in the documentary is from 11th grade high school. Okay. And I was like third in Nassau County uh, in 1965, but the gymnastics was so new 
to Long Island and actually to the country. I mean, the, you didn't grow up doing gymnastics like did it, they did in, you know, Sweden or Germany or anything like that. And so in ninth grade, when we started a gymnastic team, that was the first gymnastic team there had ever been on Long Island. So even though I was third in the county, I was so much worse than the next guy up and the guy above him. And when I went to Michigan State, you know, I, I asked, of course, I asked for some kind of, you know, help or scholarship, and they kind of laughed at me, you know. And um, <laughs> I, I tried out, you know, I actually had my bag and actually went to practice the first day. <laughs> it was so funny because I showed up there, and I am just not a natural gymnast in any way. And this guy comes out of the locker room, and he says, oh, man. And I can still see him. He kind of stretched a little bit. He says, I didn't do anything all summer. And he runs up and does a, a round off and does a double backflip. And I'm like, you know what? I might be in the wrong place. <laughs> and I swear to God, I can remember this like it was yesterday. You know, college was so hard. And Michigan State, I'm taking mechanical engineering. And the courses were just mind boggling. The first couple days of classes, like your head is spinning. And I had my bag and I lived on the, in, on the boys' side of a boys and girls dormitory. So the boys were on one side, the girls were on the other side, sure. and down below was the rec room, which was a common area. And Jenison Fieldhouse, where the gymnastics team practiced, was all the way on the other side of this huge campus. All right? And here I am. I got my bag with my gym clothes in it and my eyes. I am so bleary, just exhausted from the week of of classes and getting acclimated to everything. And I walked down the boys' side stairs to cut through, to go to leave, to go to gymnastic practice. And I walked through the common area, and there was somebody playing the piano and a few people playing cards and other people bullcrapping bull and everybody's laughing and kind of having like an impromptu hangout. And I looked at them, and I looked at my gym bag, <laughs> and I threw it down in the corner, and I swear to God, I bet it's still there. <laughs> I, I never went back to the gym team. I never went back to Jenison Fieldhouse because I envisioned walking through the – leaving the party every right. Friday at 3.30 to yeah. go gym. You know, I said, this is not me. I can't handle And I wasn't good enough. If I thought I was good enough, I might have stuck with it. But if I had to work 24 hours a day, I would have never gotten even good enough to be on the gym team at, at Michigan State, let alone win anything. So, you know, so I was, yeah, as far as gymnastics, I'm a quitter. So when people see that clip and I go, wow, you were so great, I, I wasn't. You know, I, what, could I do more flips than the, the guy standing next to me? Probably, but that's where it ended, you know. But it's so fun to have that. My buddy's father had an eight millimeter camera you know with actual film in it and he shot that a whole minute of my floor exercise routine the, the amazing thing about that is not the exercise it's, it's not my gymnastic skills the amazing thing about that is that that tape exists right that you even have it's, the footage yeah it's amazing 1965 my god i and i love it you know and i think it just is an amazing part of like the story of all the things you've done in your life, you know what I mean? It just kind of brings more of a fullness to it because um, you've really done so many, like mechanical engineer, gymna gymnast, you know, comedian, musician. You know, I was swimming today. I, before I talked to you, I was swimming, and I was thinking about how much 
isn't in that documentary. I mean, it is just staggering the amount of stuff, you know, like like climbing a palm tree during spring break in Fort Lauderdale and almost being thrown out of college for mooning. I mean, <laughs> the stuff, you know, the, the puppet shows as a kid and all kind. I had a pole vault pit when I used to pole vault in my backyard. We never even mentioned that. And that was as crazy and as unique as anything in the world. You know, I, I, there was a lot going on. You know, I always had a lot of garbage going on, you know. Absolutely. God, I, I worked so hard trying to be a songwriter, and we hardly touched on that because, you know, I was never, I had never had any success at it. But, man, did I work hard. And I fell in love and got my heart broken and wrote songs about it. And, you know. I was like, well, I don't care if I ever eat. This is what I'm going to do. And at some point you go, you know what? I, I think I do want to eat. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. You mentioned this. You mentioned the songwriting and that's something that Howard would get on you. And I have a theory and I want you to tell me if you think I'm onto something or not. It seems like Howard will pick at people when he want, when it's something he wishes he had, right? Like he wished, <clears throat> I think he wished he had the musical talent you did. You know, we see it with that the the losers, right? <clears throat> I think he wanted to like when he picked on you about going on um the Ed McMahon show, the search the for star, star search. He, yeah, no, there was always a certain amount of envy. You know, yeah. I tell people he used to take my songs and my songs were no great shakes, obviously, and most of the recordings were pretty poor. Fun stuff though. But but you could take a Beatles song and if you took one phrase at a time and made fun of the fact, look at this guy talking about love, or look at this guy talking about that, or what's that? Do, you know, do, you can do again? Really? Do, yeah. do, do again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, you can yeah. rip anything apart, and I would just take it on the chin, and I didn't care, and people wound up loving those songs, you know, and I went back and actually made a CD out of them, you know, in, in like 2008, and uh, it was just, it was always great fun, and yeah, it, it, it well, you know, he needed something to pick on, and he knew sure. I was a good target, you know, and all the stuff. You know, he didn't pick it on me about my parties. And meanwhile, he would have given his eye teeth to be able to walk in there and be, you know, have a couple beers and part of, be part of the gang at the party. And he just, he just wasn't in his wheelhouse. You know, he'd make fun of the people. You know, if there's four hundred, if there's two hundred people at a party, and you're the one that's not at the party, and you're making fun of all them. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, wait a minute. Exactly. Who's right and who's wrong? Yeah. You know, nothing against him. But that's just that's just him. You know, that's just his personality. You know, let's talk about some some greatest hits type stuff. And just tell me what you remember. Uh, one thing I love, I think you and Fred wrote it together. You can clarify was speaking of Gary. And maybe I didn't speak of Gary, but I meant to mention him in that theory. But uh, the America did the um, horse with no name uh, parody about Gary. And it's one of the funniest things in the history of the show. I, you know, every once in a while, I got a, like an oldies, you know, thing on my serious radio. And yeah. every once in a while, America comes on oh. and I'll laugh. And Barbara will say, what are you laughing at? I said, you know, we we did amazing parodies about Gary. And, and one of them was like the, the, the horse, the boy the with, with horse, horse teeth. teeth. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> Peter, Peter Noon from the Herm, from Herman's Hermits came on all the time. And every time he came on, me and Fred would write a parody to Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. And Peter Noon would sing them cold, 
like we'd hand him the lyrics and they'd play the track and he would sing it cold as he read it. Yeah. And it was, you know, Barbara Bush looks older than she ought to. Gary's teeth are greener than they should be. You know, yeah. so, you know, OJ, you know, they, they, we must have done five of them. And he was such a good sport. My God, you know. Yeah, me and Fred, you know, we we were the Lennon and McCartney. Of, you know, I could never remember who wrote which line. But we had so much fun writing those. God, you know. And, and it was funny because in the very beginning, when I first got there, to the mornings and me and Fred started working together, Howard would say, oh, Robin, here's a song parody I wrote. And he'd play it, you know, and then he'd say, here's a song parody I wrote. And all, I'd look at Fred and then all of a sudden at some point, I'm like, hey, <laughs> we wrote what, that. What, yeah. what do you mean that you wrote? <laughs> and then he, then he started going, here's a song parody me and the boys came up with. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and eventually was, hey, Jack and Fred came up with another great song parody. You know, it's like, yeah. But I was the only one who would ever speak. A Fred would have never said a word. So I had to, you know, and I wasn't trying to wrestle away something. I mean, I, that's what we were getting paid to do. But, you know, credit where credit's due. Jesus Christ, those song parodies were some of the funniest things on the show, you know. Yeah, I think the America one, I mean, first of all, they deliver it with such, like, gusto and pride. You know, like, they don't, they, they totally get the joke, and they're, they're fantastic in it. It's such a great version. Like you're, you're you're laughing in the back. It's got your great laugh. They make him like a little bit of a mistake, and he's like, "Go Rangers!" You know, like it's just like it's so perfect, and um, it's so funny. And um, man, what a what a hit! Um, that was great. That was one I wanted to mention to you. See what you remembered about that. Elton John did a great one too, right? Where he sang a really good one. Uh, now. There's a, there's a great story about that. Yes. I, I don't I don't know if I put it in my book. Do you have my book? I do. I read your book, Bow to Stern. Very good. Uh, I don't know if this story is – because there are, there are stories that, you know, uh, people, ah, you, you, you were too easy on Howard, and other people, you're too rough on Howard. You know, the hell, you know, I just sat and wrote the truth. But there were certain things that happened that would just rub you the wrong way, but – there's such little things that, you know, the average person would be like, what, you know, shut up, you know, but, uh, they had, a, they had a, um, syndicated show. Toyota sponsored a syndicated Howard Stern show very soon after we went to mornings, they decided that they wanted a syndicated radio show to syndicate around the country. And they were going to tape, they taped them on Saturdays and I wasn't included. And, and Howard was like, you know, as soon as we get a little more budget, I hope to include you. But that was that was not true. What the sponsor wanted, an audience. So they had like 20, 30, 40 people in the audience. And I think a lot of them were the sponsor and their friends. And there was no way, especially very early on when nobody knew I was writing so much. Uh, nobody had any idea. And there was no way Howard was going to have 30 people sitting there watching him and Robin and me and me handing him joke after joke after joke. And meanwhile, that syndicated show lasted, I think, a couple months and just went away because it, it, it wasn't funny and it didn't have this, the spirit. But they had great guests because, you know, they had a budget. And Fred wrote that Elton John song. I had nothing to do with that. Fred wrote that Elton John song, and Elton John came in. I mean, Fred just wrote a, a you know a poem, 
he wrote a song, but no music. And he put it, they put it in front of Elton John and he made up that song as he went along. Wow. Uh, the, there is a man who has a small penis. penis. Yes. And it was just <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. So one day we're sitting on the air and Howard had a dump switch. Like if somebody cursed, he could flip the switch and it would jump up seven seconds so you wouldn't hear the dirty word and then it would it would regenerate to where it was back seven seconds again so you could always be able to bleep yourself out of something horrible <clears throat> so one day we start the show and fred was so brilliant i don't know what if he still does it but he would compile this amazing montage to start every show and there would be a theme to it and would have maybe a a, a a some some clips of this that or the other thing but they were somehow connected but it was a couple minutes long and it would always end with either a song parody or one of our bits yeah or something and then it would come into the music and howard would start the show so one day fred ended his montage with that Elton John song. There was a man, he had a small penis, and then we started the show. And as we started the show, I said to Howard, you know, on the air, I said, you know, Howard, I think that might be the single greatest thing that Fred ever wrote. And Howard said, really? And he kind of leaned forward. And I said, that son of a bitch, man. He dumped it. And and then I, I called Nancy on the break because she always was listening early in the morning. And I called and said, hey, did you hear that Elton John song, you know, at the end of Fred's montage? She says, yeah, that's one of my favorite things. I said, yeah. Did you hear me say to Howard how that was the greatest thing Fred ever wrote? And she said, what are you talking about? I said, when the show started, I said, that was one of the greatest things that Fred ever wrote. And Howard, he, he hit the dump switch. Wow. Because that would have put that song in Fred's category where, meanwhile, the whole world thinks that Howard writes everything and does everything. So that would have not just put in put that in Fred's pile, but it would have taken out of his pile, you know, or yeah. else or else the world would have thought Elton John made it up, you know. So, and that was just the kind of thing that, that you know, that's that was so, so annoying, it, you know. And slowly but sure, but surely, I got Fred to, you know, stand up for himself and stand up with me. I mean, I wasn't any kind of a hero, but you know, if I'm going to complain, I you know. It, it made me look bad to be the one that's like saying, what about me? When it was more like, what about us? You know? Absolutely. The The book Bow to Stern, 1986, the first attempt to syndicate the Howard Stern show is a chapter. And you can see, you go into more detail about that story and more there as well. I just found that real quick for so we could mention it to the people. Uh, cause oh, the, so it's in the book. Part, yeah. Yeah. You do. You do sort of tell Nancy would record the show and how you called her, but you actually have a lot more detail about the syndication in general. It's a good chapter of the book. Um, I had some stuff actually highlighted in that chapter uh, too. Um, well, listen, when I wrote that book, I wrote enough for two books. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have an, I have an entire second book sitting here on my computer. So if you actually read that book, I'm going to mail you the chapters that weren't in the book and you're going to go nuts. Oh, that would that be amazing. Fan, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. You will, you know, you're going to want to do another interview after you read that. You know, <laughs> you're right. I'm going to probably want to do it anyway. Everything I forgot to ask you. Let me throw one more out, and we'll we'll wind down and I'll let you go. I know you got a beautiful summer day to enjoy. Um, no, I hey, I got nothing to do. I'm enjoying <laughs> right. myself. 
my the, the grandchildren, my sister's grandchildren are down at the beach, and you know I'll just go down and harass the hell out of them. You know? <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, another famous moment um, that I love, and you're great in. I know this is more of a um, Jackie and Billy moment. Was when Conan got absolutely crushed by the Jackie puppet. What do you remember about that day and that sort of interaction? And, and I know I just know that uh, Howard swore that they were trying to get him to take that spot. That NBC, I think it was NBC, that, that they wanted him to take Conan's slot on the show. And I'll never know if that was true or not true. But a lot of things he said, you know, like he came in and said, yeah, I had a meeting with Michael Jackson yesterday. And we're like, yeah, right. And meanwhile, he really did. You know, Michael right. Jackson. Yeah, it's in his book. One of the books. reached out to yeah. Howard to, you know, to try and help his image, and Howard said no. You know, but <clears throat> so Conan wanted to come on the show, and you know, he didn't want to come on. He just had needed to do whatever he could to promote his show because it was just dying. And we threw him a, a. I always say we. It's Howard's show, but we threw him a goodbye party. So Conan came on the air as a guest and it was a goodbye you know a farewell to nbc party which was so outrageous and then billy just violently attacked him with the jackie puppet and it's so because <laughs> it's so, it's just like otto and george it's just there is no yeah. way to react because you can't yell at billy because he's not the one saying it but other you look and you're yelling at a dummy. It's, it's just a no-win proposition, and the dummy just attacked him. And you were writing, and, right? You were writing, yeah, oh, yeah. like a, a mile a minute. And <laughs> I, you know, I really should find those notes. And that the, you know, people said, and I've never really gone and trying to match up the dates, but a lot of people said that no, that's when Triumph the Insult Dog started, because Conan realized that dog could. I mean that. Puppet could say anything to right. him. Yeah, it was the it was you know it was the the puppet is bulletproof because it's a stupid puppet. Of course, it's a person saying it. You know, it, it's it, I, I've never found that. Out. I've never you know firmly confirmed that. You know, it makes sense but, though. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it'd, it'd be interesting to ask what's his face, the guy that that came up with it. Like, you know, I mean it's it's not it's a no brainer of an idea. To, to have an attack puppet. I mean, all puppets are actually, they're always attacking the owner or whoever. So, you know, I, I'm not saying for sure that happened, but it, it's a pretty nice coincidence, you know. Right. Robert Smigel is the guy who who we would have to ask probably about that, but it makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, um, That moment, by the way, like, you know, I told you I listened to old. It's one of those that if it came up every day, I'd still listen to it every day. Like, you guys are just, that's like the, you know, the 72 Dolphins or the 86 Mets or whatever team at their best. It's like that's one of those days where everything's clicking. You know, I, I refer to, I'm older than you. I refer to us as the 1927 Yankees. Fair enough. That murderer's row. You can't beat that. There yeah. you go. Yeah, you can't beat that. I thought 72 hey, that, Dolphins was That would be stupid, good. but you don't off the top of your head have the date of that day that Conan came on, do you? But I'll find it in five minutes for sure. I can get you the date. I don't have it on top I, of my head, but I'll find it. I will it. go looking. I, I've got all the notes I ever wrote for Howard. I'm sure I have those notes. Yeah, Jackie and Billy tease Conan with the Jackie puppet. I'll find it in one second. 
What do you got? This all logged? You're a nut. Yeah, I got a pretty good. I got a pretty good archive. Um, looks like starting it, when? Starting when? Uh, well, the '80s stuff is spotty. You know what I mean? Um, in the early '90s, but starting like in '93 or '94, I have every sh- pretty much every show in full. Um, you would not believe how many cassettes I have from '86, '86, '87, '88. I got full shows on cassette, and I'm pretty sure they're still viable. Yeah, people would go nuts for that, Jackie, because that era is so like you had we. The community basically has like what what Howard put out in specials. You know, like they did like a five day like WNBC special during the satellite early satellite years where he was actually trying to make the channels good. Um, so that stuff is it's hard, but when you get, you know, once you get to '94 for sure. We got pretty much everything, um, pretty cold, uh, you know, every show. But um, man, you would you would make the lives of some collectors out there if you if somehow some of those tapes got out because that's the hardest uh, hardest thing to have. You know what I mean? Um, well, you know, I should pull them out. All my cassette players that I have, none of them work anymore because I hadn't used them in millions of years. You know, I just got to find a decent cassette player and see, see if they because in the beginning. I mean, it's before your time, but that's with the beginning with the live sponsors where me and Fred would write these long, you know, incredible commercials with Mrs. Roselli's Movers and the Jan and Craig Window Factory and Snapple and Nutrisystem, you know, and when all those were brand new sponsors, you know, it, and uh, we'd go crazy trying, you know, PC Richards, we We'd write these incredible people would say, "Wow, you know the commercials are the funniest part of the show." You <laughs> I've heard I mean? some of that stuff for sure. I have the date. I told you I get it, uh, November sixteenth, nineteen ninety four, Conan O'Brien versus Jackie Puppet. Hold on a second. One time, a guy wrote to me and said. Uh, Hey, there was something that Howard said to David Carradine when he was on the show. And uh, I know you wrote it. And I said, you know what? Give me the date and I'll find it. And the guy gave me the date and I actually went in my mother's attic and I actually found the note. That's amazing. So I've always thought I could do that. You know, I got some people that actually want to buy the notes. I've got every note that Howard ever said that I wrote in my mother's attic. And these people want to buy the whole kit and caboodle. And everything's in there, you know, Woodie and Sternak and all, you know, there's such a, you know, the, all the Ted Kennedy bits and the Elvis and you wouldn't believe the crap I've got. If, you, if you're a real arch, archivist and have so much stuff, you really should take a trip out here and see what I have. You probably yeah. could figure out, figure out something to do with it, you know. Yeah, the... Uh when I saw that in the, the doc that you had all that stuff, I was like, Howard always talked and he'll never do it, but Howard always talked in jest, like, Oh, I should do a Stern show um, museum or whatever. You should do a Jackie museum with all the stuff you've saved. Cause you seem well, like you have everything. Yeah. It's pretty frightening. The stuff I have here. Yeah. Where do you live? Uh, Buffalo, New York. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, it's home. You know, people love their home no matter where it is, you know? No, no, I had a, many, many good shows in Buffalo. Yeah. Many, many. I, you know, there was actually a Buffalo Comedy Club for a couple of years, a long, long, long time ago. And uh, I'll never forget because um, 
I was up there for the weekend, but it included uh, New Year's Eve. Oh, nice. And, and I, the hotel was pretty close to the club, and I went over in the afternoon of New Year's Day, I mean New Year's Eve, <clears throat> and the snow, the snowflakes oh, were the yeah. size of a baseball, and it was huge. And I said to the waitresses, I said, wow, I guess the show's going to be canceled for tonight. And the waitress nope. looked at me like I was crazy. She said, <laughs> and she said, are you kidding? It's not even sticking. Yeah. <laughs> we get about I a- said, well, you guys have a different a different uh, unit of measure when it comes to snow. You yeah. Know? We get about 100 inches a year. So, um, Wow. Yeah. The uh, the Conan moment is great. The, the America song. Is there something that stands out to you, just something that you think of that – just was a day in there, like we said, like a 1927 Yankees day where just everything was clicking. <clears throat> so many days. Yeah. So many days. It, it, you know, like sitting knees to knees with James Taylor and he played four songs live. And one day, uh, you know, uh, Sam Kennison came busting through the door with Jack Riley, Pat McCormick and Chuck McCann. You know, and then uh, the Bee Gees sang, you know, sitting across from me, Howard and Robin in London. You know, who could who could even start to name the incredible, you know. That's what know, I love the- about the 80s stuff, too, Jackie, is like I have these like two or three hour chunks where you start with like, I don't know, Dice in there. And then next thing you know, Zappa's in there. And then next thing you know, the uh, the guy from Mario Speedwagons. It's like this three hour hang, and the people change a little bit, but it's just, it never slows down. It's like a great flow, and it's such a great representative of the era. Like I love listening to those chunks of the show from back then. Now, uh, where are those from? Those are from I want to say early K Rock, early K Rock morning no, show. No, but I mean, who who put that collection oh, together? Well, a lot of the a lot of the stuff came from a listener in Colorado because you'll hear the Colorado ads over and over again. Um, and I know like almost eighty percent of everything out there is from the same collection that started in the in in the Denver market. Um, but there was a, a guy named uh, he went by Laird Lairden, and he did this thing called Stern Files, and he would put these compilations of like it's basically a playlist on itunes and it'd be like 80 well maybe 50 40 to 50 um different different cuts and like track one would be like that two hour chunk from the 80s and then track two would be like you know chris rock visits and then track three would be like you know and it's hey if you got if you got the names or the emails or any kind of contact for any like the guy from denver or any of these people that have these compilations Please send them to me because I would love. I don't know if anybody has these these cassettes from like eighty six, eighty seven. They, they I mean, don't. Nancy, I'm telling Nancy you, they don't. Literally, she recorded them right off the radio. Yeah, they don't know? have them. We would. We. Would I mean, as I'm saying that they could be sitting in my they could be sitting in my basement blank at this point. <laughs> but uh, if anybody, if I had reason to find out, you know. Yeah, well, I'm going to stay on you on this stuff. One, I got to see those those lost chapters. I'm gonna stay on you on that, and and there's some if you def, if you have stuff from the '80s, I'll I'll get on a plane and come to Long Island. You, you'll be like, wait, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> so no, I I but I'm see, people don't believe me when I say it. These people in California that want to buy all the notes, I said, you know, I just need to think about it because they just approached me just as the documentary is coming out, and right. you know, I've been going nonstop. I mean, the amount of promotion. You know who Bert Kreischer is? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's hilarious. I just was out in L.A. I did a two-and-a-half-hour podcast with him. Wow. He's such a big fan. He said when he was a kid in Philadelphia, he was 10 years old and his brother was 8 years old, and they called 922-WINE every day, my dirty joke line. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I, I got a long history with a lot of people, you know? That's, yeah, it's, it's um, I, I like I said, I was 13, I think, the first time I heard the show. Um I you know I watched every I didn't go to bed for like all of high school without watching the E show. You know like I would watch ah. E and then I would go to bed and then you know I was I listened like I said pretty much every day um since straight through one way or another. Um and I love all the eras, you know. And then when I didn't love it anymore, I said, "You know what? Instead of complaining that it's not what it was, there's a hundred thousand hours of what I love. I'll just listen to that. You know what I mean? So. It's, it's amazing how many people are doing that. Yeah. You know, I get emails from, like, let me tell you, the best compliment I ever got, a guy wrote to me, and this is a long time ago, he said, uh, Jackie, I'm from Toronto, and I started listening to the Howard Stern Show in 2007. And it instantly became my favorite thing in the world, the Howard Stern Show. He said, but then I found out that there were older shows from the 90s, and right. I started listening to them. <clears throat> Listen to this. He said it was like having a new favorite band and then finding out that their earlier albums were much better. Right. How, how creative a, a compliment. Yeah, that's beautiful. Because you know, that's, you know, that's, that's not cutting down the Howard Stern show. No. It's just saying that, you know, People like some sections of it better, you know. Yeah, it's like the Van Ro the Van Roth Van Hagar stuff. You know, there you go. You know, just because you like fifty one fifty doesn't mean you can't love Van Halen one or whatever. Um, let's get out of here on this. The movie you have this, in my opinion, your biggest scene is the showstopper, the st the steal of the movie. Um, it's the best recreation of radio in the movie by none, bar none. Like none of the other recreations of radio are even close to this. Tell me a little bit about recording your big scene where you guys play the match game and just every time you you talk in that scene, it's hilarious. It's my favorite part of the movie, and I always kind of wanted to ask you about putting together. I know I think in, one of, in the history of Howard Stern special, you might have mentioned that you kind of improvised some of those lines in it. Can you tell me about the movie that, and recording that? that? that, that for, I will never know why that chapter was not in my book. It, the, I, the, the chapter about that is called Very Private Parts, and it explains so much, and it explains how I was left out, how I was underpaid, how I didn't get credit for what I did. All my Jackie Martling checks, checklist of, of complaints about that show were all in, encompassed in that, in that making of that movie. Right. And not, why I didn't put it in the book, I'll send it to you. It's a long involved story, but awesome. um but it just was so much fun making the movie. They they were gonna make the movie without me and I think without Fred. And it's would have been a mistake. It, yep. It was so subtle. Uh Howard always had talked about making a movie, making a movie. Then he started talking about, yeah, we got the greatest script, we got the greatest script, and then all of a sudden he said, Yeah, well, I fired that guy, we're starting over. And then all of a sudden, the guys are showing up. <clears throat> People, are, you know, around the show are showing up with these baseball hats on with a big H on them. 
And I'm like, what the hell's that? And it turned out that one by one, everybody was going down to this new production office <clears throat> and being interviewed to talk about the show so they could start to, you know, come up with a film about it. <clears throat> and they never asked me. And Stuttering John told me, yeah, he said, uh, they took, they, I went down and they gave me this hat and they interviewed me about the show. And they made me sign away all my rights to everything forever. And and whoever it was from Don Buckwell's office said, and please don't tell anybody about this because everyone's not involved. Wow. And I think that I think. But wear the hat around. I knew. Yeah, <laughs> I knew. I absolutely was aware of why I wouldn't have been involved <clears throat> because there's no way Howard was going to make a movie of his life. And show him on the air with somebody writing lines and throw them in front of him. So right. I could understand them leaving me out of the mix. But I think they were leaving out Fred, too, because he did. He does so much. He does so much more than anybody will ever, ever know. And I would like to write the Fred Norris story when I'm done with the Jackie Martling story. Because talk about unsung heroes. A genius. He's a genius. And, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, that whole deal fell apart. And they decided to start over. And Howard said, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to start the movie over. I didn't like what they were doing. They didn't include my guys. And that's when right, the right most, when came that, in. Yeah. That's the most ho horrible horse crap you could say. Because, <laughs> of course, right. he, you know, they weren't going to include his guys. <clears throat> so Ivan Reitman and, I, and they came up with a way to do it that wouldn't show me writing. The way that movie looks it looks like I hopped on after they already had hit the big time. All of a sudden, I was lucky and jumped on the bandwagon as they were just arriving at the moon, <laughs> which couldn't have been further from the truth. You know, like, hey, Howard, look, is a new member of our cast. If he, if he had held up my three comedy albums that got me on the show, do you know what that would have done for me? Oh, my God. They would have, that would have made them collector's items. But he just said, here's our new guy on the show, Jackie the Joke Man Martling, which I wasn't Jackie the Joke Man yet in reality. <clears throat> and then we had a table read and everybody has to read their lines, you know, and everybody sits there. No matter if you had two sentences in the movie, you're at the table read, which is how they do it in movies and television and everything. And they got to me and, we're, you know, it was uh, Blank Willow. So my line was to say, pussy, you know, I have pussy. <clears throat> now I'm a comic and we're sitting there for hours doing this <laughs> table read. And it's like watching paint dry. So I feel compelled to try and make people laugh. That's just me. So when it got to me, I, I wrote pussy sloppy and I said, I have pussy. In fact, I wrote it sloppy. I got sloppy pussy <laughs> and everybody went nuts at the table. But they never said another word. They never said, do that, don't do that. Here it is months later. We're on set. There's 60 union people all around. There's somebody sitting in our chairs so they could light them up, you know, pretending they're me and Fred. Then we sit down to do it and we start the scene and nobody has said, do what you're at, do your ad lib. Or do it the way it's in the script. And I'm thinking, I don't want to blow this take with all these people. You know, you're watching it, you know, click, 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 all these union people. Right. So when it got to me, I just, you know, I did it the way it was in the script. 
And we got done with the take, and I said, all right, cut. And the producer came over, and he didn't even say it out loud. He put cupped his hand around my ear and said, do you remember what you said at the table, Reed? And I said, well, of course. He said, why don't you try that? Of course, we did, you know, we did another take, and I said, pussy, I got sloppy pussy, and it wound up being maybe the funniest line, or certainly one of the funniest lines in the movie, and and that's how that came about, and nobody ever, you know, and I got paid so, relatively speaking, so poorly for that film, and it, it just, you know, the combination of almost not being in it, and then getting paid bad, and hardly being in it, it was just a whole weird situation. But I, I will tell you that it's the most fun I ever had in my life was, you know, the maybe 10 days that I worked on it. It was just, you know, I sat next to a naked Jenna Jameson for like two days. Yeah, wow, beat that. that. Yeah, you know, yeah that beat that. Suck. The, only, the only thing, like, it's too bad that there wasn't a little less Howard and Allison and a little bit more Howard and the group, you know. Um I mean, even Gary's barely in it, except for those, you know, cut-ins or whatever, where he's in real life with the signs or whatever. But um, right, right. Uh, the the movie it's called Jackie Martin Joke Man, and you can go to jokemanmovie.com. It's available on Apple TV, Prime Video. It's anywhere where you you know rent movies to watch on streaming. You can get it really easily, just a couple bucks, and it's great. It's about an hour and ten, hour and fifteen minutes. And some of the great stories Jackie told here, there's even more great stories there. Uh, great cameos. You never know who's going to pop on the screen. We talked about it in the beginning. I mean, there's people in a wide range from, you know, um, Ganji or uh, not Ganji, Grillo. Grillo to, uh, you know, uh, Willie Nelson and everyone in between. Yeah. One minute you're looking at Steve Grillo and <laughs> yeah. next minute you're looking at Mark Cuban. It's like, you know, how do you, how do you compute that, you know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> Um, definitely, you know, we mentioned the book about a stern, anything else you want to promote or mention? I want to make sure people can find it. Well, I, I, would, I do a lot of cameos. Yes. Cameo. Uh, Cameo.com slash Jackie Martling. You know, you want me to tell your father a joke, happy birthday to your sister. And your price you know, is reasonable. Your, your price is reasonable. Yeah. yeah. 70, 75 bucks. Cause I enjoy doing them. You know, I whip off three or four or five in the morning. It's like. I, I feel like I just entertained a few people and, you know, and I'm shallow. I love it. I really get a kick out of it. And, um, and I'm, well, uh, of course I'm on Twitter, you know, twitter.com slash Jackie Martling. And I basically just, you know, put up my gigs and then, you know, I got the Facebook and the Instagram and all that. One thing I did TikTok. I stopped putting my jokes on TikTok because I, I need to use it to promote the, uh, the documentary. I haven't got to that. But there's like a couple hundred jokes on on TikTok, and you could go to my TikTok, it, you know, TikTok slash. It's I don't know how why it is, but to find me on TikTok, it's TikTok.com slash at Jackie Martling. Okay. But you could sit there and, and listen to hundreds of jokes, and you know what's funny? They have to be clean enough for terrestrial radio. Okay. But the Chinese censors, I don't know. You know, I kind of test them. You would not believe how filthy the jokes are that are on there. <laughs> that I, like, there's a really, really filthy joke. And by just changing a few words, the girl says uh, to the guy behind the, the drugstore counter, I need to buy a dozen condoms. And he says, oh, don't want to have any kids, huh? And she says, no, 
my boyfriend doesn't want to get any poop on his rocket. <laughs> and it sailed right past. And that, you don't get a dirtier joke than that. You That's know. great. So the, and there's like a couple hundred of them. One one of the jokes on TikTok got 1.1 million views. Wow. You know, and and that's you know, and it's very filthy and very funny, and it deserves it. You know, so have a look. You know, awesome. Well, listen, Jackie, I want to say this uh, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I mean, for the book, the movie, I've li- been listening. Your voice has been in my ears since 1994. Four, three, whenever I started, every day since. I've had four bowel reconstructions, you know, and, and when you're in the hospital and you're alone, you put the headphones in and listen to the show and take you back to the better days or whatever. But really, honestly, from, from my heart, for Stern fans everywhere, because I don't think you get it enough, you're, the contribution you made to the greatest radio show of all time, which it is, no matter what uh, we could say bad or, or good about it, it's still the best of all time, and it wouldn't have been without you. So really, honestly, from a huge fan, Thank you so much. Thank you for this time. You've been incredibly generous to me. Oh, you know, I'm more than more than happy to do it. I'm sorry I had to put it off for a little no, while. No, it's fine. It's, it's just been yeah. crazy, you know. I'm glad you're out there promoting and getting the word out because it's a great doc. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they're already talking about doing a sequel because there's so many. I don't know if it would be a sequel, but like an accompanying thing because there's so much that wasn't addressed. My, my dream is for us to go around and, and show the documentary at small theaters or yeah, comedy clubs or whatever, and then do Q and A's afterwards because the Q and A, if we just take a film Q and A and just insert a few pictures, you got another documentary, you know? Absolutely. So bring me to Buffalo. I will. <laughs> do you know, do you know Lederman, Rob Lederman? He was on the radio. Comic here was on the radio for a long time. The morning show here. He has a comedy club. He's promoting a new one. It's like my daughter had a dance recital in there. And then two weeks later, I saw Jim Florentine in the same spot. Um, now, where is it? This is in Buffalo? Yeah. Yeah. Rob Lederman was like, he's like a, like a local comic here. And he was on the, the the classic rock station. He was on the morning show forever here. And then he actually got canceled because he made a joke about uh, Holly Berry's skin tone and, and like paralleled it to toast and like burning your toast. Or something, and he got in trouble. And then, wildly enough, Jackie, I'm in the hospital. Um, I had a, a little surgery, and he's my roommate. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he he told me he said it, he thought I was old because he said I looked like I had old feet because all I could see was my feet at first. And he didn't realize I was in my 40s. He thought I was in my 80s because he says I have old feet. But he's a great dude, and that would be the guy who would bring you here because he's he promotes a lot of the comic that shows. And well, stuff. ask him, ask yeah. him. You know, I still got a lot of friends up in Buffalo. We'd love to have you. It's been too long since you know. You've been I here. did a show there so long ago, and I don't know. It was not a comedy club. It was some guy that put shows together. But there are people that remember it because there was a midget. I know you can't say it anymore, but there was <laughs> a, a mid, yeah. There was a midget MC. Wow! Literally a midget MC, and it was the fun. Oh my god! What a night! I was so drunk in those days. Listen, yeah. I'm ready to do this anytime you okay. want to do it again, or if you come up with something that. Yeah, You're trying to figure out what happened. You and know, I got your email. Know. I'm going to email you so you can send me those um, the chapters of the book. I'd love to read those for sure. I will definitely do that. All right, thank you, and, Jackie. Uh, I want I want I want your feedback on how you like the chapters. Absolutely, you, you can. There's some on great, it. great Rodney stories. You're going to go nuts. This means the world. Thank you, Jackie. All right, see you later. Bye bye.
could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Jackie Martling for being on the show. That was sick. Wow. <laughs> Jackie Martling and Artie Lang have been on this show. Thank you very much. Unbelievable. Hey, that might have to be the last night moves. I've been using night moves for years as the book club song, and it, I just keep getting harassed by Spotify about it. They keep sending me warnings, and I just worry that one of these times they're going to take an episode down. They haven't yet, so I'm going to have to switch that that spot there. Say goodbye to Bob. He served us well, but that may have to be it. All right, quick book club update, and then we're going to move along to our interview with Poznanski. Uh, first of all, good news. Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek, How 17 Shows Transformed Television by Tia Glassman. The interview is on. Uh, Tia will join us in a few episodes. So Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek by Tia Glassman. Uh, purchase that. We will be speaking to her soon. Speaking of speaking too soon, The Wingmen, the unlikely, unusual, unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams by our friend Adam Lazarus. Adam will be with us soon as well. He's already been on once to promote it. We'll have him on a second time. He's also going to be on a three by five. When my, you're my friend and you write a book as cool as this one, you get to be on my show multiple times and on my YouTube show. Uh, two new friends, hopefully. The authors are Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd. I'm interviewing them tomorrow. Their book is called Kingdom Quarterback. Patrick Mahomes, the Kansas City Chiefs, and how once swinging cow town chased the ultimate comeback. I'll interview those dudes tomorrow about their book. And then one more. Uh, we're going to get to it in a second. Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments by Joe Piznanski. Uh, this comes out September 5th for pre-order. Pre-order now comes out September 5th. Uh, we have, with Mr. Piznanski, promoted Why We Love Baseball, The Baseball 100, The Life and Afterlife of Houdini, Paterno, and The Secret Life of Golf. Uh, all of his books, except for The Machine and The Soul of Baseball, which both predate the podcast. But Joe Pizdansky's always on to promote his stuff. And uh, this new baseball book, which might be his best, about the 50 best moments in baseball, is next. Uh, so let's take a break, and we will be right back with Joe Pizdansky. <laughs> Sportscasters, 24-inch podcast listeners, your favorite podcast host, Steve Bennett, has a new show. It's 3x5 with Steve Bennett. New episodes every Tuesday, and this time it's on YouTube. Search North-South Connection on YouTube for the show. Each week, three lists of five each episode. Like, comment, subscribe. It's 3x5 with Steve Bennett.
Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I was just trying to count up how many books you've promoted on this podcast now. <laughs> All of them, right? I think ev- um, every one since Paterno. Yeah, yeah. So that's what, five books ago? Four or five books ago? The yeah, Baseball it's... 100, Houdini, sure. Paterno, The Secret of Golf. Yep, yep. And uh, so that's... Uh, I think the only ones we didn't do were The Machine and The Soul of Baseball. So I think those predate the show. Right, right. So those those go before. But other right. than that, uh, we've always been here. It's been uh, it's been fantastic. And we talk, we've talked about this before, so we won't get super into it. But the Paterno thing, like... I mean, I don't... You probably were talking to other people, too. But I just remember that we really chronicled that here quite a bit. Like, I remember talking to you before you were going to do it, after you got to Penn State. I remember talking to you once sort of the book had it changed and obviously when it came out. Someday I should, like, stitch those together because I think, I think that was just an interesting story. Have you ever thought about doing a book like that again? What I mean is, like, where you'd actually embed yourself somewhere like the plan was with Penn State when you first got there? Or you think you're just uh, beyond that point? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I've I've loved doing that. I mean, obviously, the paternal book turned out so different from what right. uh, from what I thought it was going to be. But I, I I love the idea of embedding myself in places. Um, but probably not, just because. Well, one, I'm just at a different life stage, I think, right. than I was then. Um, but beyond that, I. What I found, you know, for these, you know, I know we'll talk about why we love baseball. It was true for that. It was true for baseball in 100. It was definitely true for Houdini is I did kind of embed myself in that world. You know what I mean? Like, like I just lived Houdini particularly because right. I knew nothing about magic. You know, we've talked about that on the show. Yeah. Um, I lived magic. You know, there was no one place particularly to embed myself to do that book. Like there was no, like I, it wouldn't have made sense to embed myself like in, in, in Wisconsin where he grew up or, or anything like that because his life was so diverse. But, you know, that was all about just going to where the story was. And, and obviously the baseball 100, I just lived it every single day, uh, which I loved. And this book, I lived it every single day, and and my upcoming book on uh, on on why we love and hate football, uh, I'm living it every single day. So that feeling of embedding myself is is very much still a part of of why I do this. I just don't know that physically uh, the kinds of books that I'm doing now make sense for me to embed myself in any one place. If right, that makes sense, and that makes sense. It's more just about sort of going all in, whether you're. That means right. you're in a place or not, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's 100% it, 100% it. The Baseball 100 sort of started as a column when you were at The Athletic, and it built into, I mean, you you probably wouldn't say this, but I think it's fair for me to, one of the best baseball books of all time. I mean, certainly one of the most well-received and the most sold and one of the most, I mean, people love that book. It was a huge huge hit and i think why we love baseball it's sort of a sequel in a way but it's also not called like the baseball 102 right you know so i i I think that takes a little bit of the pressure off making a sequel like sometimes you get the godfather 2 you know sometimes (laughs) you get the second terminator movie 
you know, but other times you get like dumb and dumber too. You know what I mean? It's right. Right. <laughs> what did you think about? I mean, this is kind of the first time you wrote a sequel, even though it's not really, but it's a companion, I think, at the least. Sure. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, hundred percent. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see it as a sequel, but I do see it as as the next step, right? So this sure. is, and I think anybody who would read it, I mean, look, the cover looks similar. The, the the style is similar. Uh, it is another countdown. It's a countdown of the greatest uh, and most magical moments in baseball history rather than the, the greatest players. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're obviously comparisons. But I, I really found the writing of this one to be very, very different. Um, this is a much more personal book for me. Uh, this is uh, – I was able to tell – stories that that I was able to you know when you when you're writing about the baseball 100 the 100 greatest players ever um you're you're pretty I would say limited because because you know it's it's obviously was my choice who the 100 players were but you are limited to an extent right it's like I can't I'm not going to write about Dwayne Kuyper in that book right. as you much can't as put I Walt love Dwayne Kuyper. Yeah, or Walt right. Weiss. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 There, there, there is just isn't going to be a Nephi Perez uh section in that book. It's just it's limited. This book was unlimited in, in a way that, you know, anybody to me who who had that kind of magical moment that explains why we love baseball, that could be an all-time great player, like Willie Mays' catch or something like that, DiMaggio's streak whatever the case may be, um, or it could be a completely unknown player. And there, there are numerous stories like that in this book. So, so there was a, it was a different kind of process for me as a, as a writer. I made many, many more choices uh, for where I wanted to go. And so the, that's what sort of led to, I think, this being a, a just a really, really personal uh, book. And, and I, and I love it. I, I mean, I really do. I, I, it's, I've I've been excited, obviously, when all of my books have come out, and and they've been obviously different experiences. Paterno was going to be very very different from Houdini, very very different from my first book. Um, but I've I've not felt this level of sort of excitement for a book to come out probably since my very first book, and just because I love it so much, I think it's such a happy book, and and I really can't wait for people to read it. I really can't wait for it to sort of, I, I think it's like a conversation, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an opening to a conversation about why uh, we love this great game. Yeah. And it's so relatable in the sense that, you know, th what I love about baseball and why not, right. What we love about baseball is the moments I think, and, and I'm, I'm walking right into your trap here, right? Like I, I can get lost on YouTube just looking at playoff home runs. You know, like, yes. oh, I want to watch the Dave Justice home run off Arthur Rhodes in the 2000 ALCS. That's one of my favorites. Or the Dave Justice home run in the 1995 World Series. Then I want to watch that home run that Jose Canseco hit in the Sky Dome because I just remember right. as a kid thinking, wow, you can hit it that far, you know, or, you know, whatever. Baseball just lends itself to that. Like the individual drama, I think of the, the way the game is played pitch by pitch like that. You know, the the, the uniqueness of walk-offs, you know, um, 
it just it really it really fits easy and i think the book becomes super relatable because like you said any moment could have been eligible so so i can imagine my moments right along with you you know yeah yeah and i think that's the point i think that's absolutely the point i mean i you know i say that right at the start like i i hope your moment is in here uh but it might not be because baseball is so personal and and uh, you know it's funny you should mention Conseco because you you watch Jose Conseco hit that massive massive home run he hit yeah what a bomb uh, and you go and, and what a bomb and you go oh my gosh and then you're like oh wait I want to see the home run that bounced off of Jose Conseco's head right. so you watch that <laughs> right, right? You exactly know? like you yeah. never you never know where the next moment is going to take you and that's what I wanted this this book to be honestly is one moment to the next to the next and you're like well wow this these don't how did i go from uh you know one of one of the how did i go from kirk gibson's you know famous home run uh in 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 the world series the limping home run in the world series to a story of ponderous joe bauman who hit you know 72 home runs in the minor leagues that's what i wanted this book to be i wanted it to be Familiar, unfamiliar, familiar, unfamiliar, taking you through the game, and 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 I think that's why it's. I think it's a lot of fun. I just, I just, what I what I envision in my mind. You know, I always think about sort of the ideal reader, like what the ideal reader is, and you know, and it it could be it could be a kid, it could be uh you know a, a an eighty year old fan of, of baseball all of uh, his or her life. It could be my mother, it, you know, it could be all of these different kinds of people in my mind. And in every version of this, I just see them smiling a lot through this book. And that's, that's really what was uh, kind of the driving force for me. One thing I loved about reading it was the anticipation for the next five chapter. Yeah. You know, I loved, I loved those. Um, Cause like you said, those very much take you to really different places almost like being in a YouTube uh, rabbit hole, you know, or like the, the weird home run ones, you know, you're all of a sudden you're at Bartol Colon's home run, which I think is right. the fifth one, you know, it's like, how did we get here? And I, and I think each one of those five, I think there's five, five duels. What was it? Let me see. Five loud home runs, yeah. five trick plays, five mouth. You know, all the, that was my favorite thing about it. And I love, and I think a couple different times I said, I'm going to read to the next one and then I'll stop there. You know, as I was going <laughs> yeah. through it, yeah, um, love doing that. W- Where did the idea for that come? Just to fit more idea, more moments in, but still have the fifty concepts. It's it's a yeah. I got to tell you, this is right at the heart of of writing this book because this book I probably changed more times than any other book that I've written. Like as far as the not not so much the writing itself. But change the 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 spine of it. Okay, how is this going to look? What's the narrative going to be? At one point, it was the the hundred. Uh, it was a hundred moments. At one point, it was 30, uh, 42 moments. I actually added a forty two moments. At ah, one for point. Robinson. Yeah, good idea. For Rob, for, yeah. for Jackie Robinson. I I tried it in so many different ways. I've got a a board behind me in my office where uh, like a big whiteboard where I would keep all of the moments and. And I just was going round and round and round. Like, how do I, how do I do it so that it feels substantial as a list, but also we get a 
bunch of moments in there, you know, and and I didn't want it to be as long and 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 sort of, uh, you know, intimidating maybe as the baseball 100 was. So I I went round and round and round. And then weirdly, the one that that struck me was I I was thinking about Ozzy Smith's great barehanded play. That's that's a moment in this book where yep. he he dives ground ball up the middle. He dives ball kicks to his right. He barehands it, makes the play. Maybe the greatest defensive play in baseball history. And I knew that was going to be a moment. And I started to think, you know, I want the Kevin Mitchell barehanded play in here. You know, I mean, it's I don't think it's one of the 50 most magical moments of baseball history, but it's one of the 100 in my mind. Sure, yeah. And I want that in there. And I thought, oh, barehanded plays. And I'm like, were there other great barehanded plays? And and I I came across the lightning catch, which was what maybe the first great defensive play in in you know sort of acknowledged in baseball history back in in uh, the early 20th century and i'm like oh i could put the lightning catch and it gave me the idea you know what i ought to do uh like the five greatest barehanded plays or five most magical barehanded plays i try not to use greatest because because i i what i'm what i'm thinking in my mind is not great it's just this thing that 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 it's why we love baseball, right? It's the it's the moments that make you like love baseball. And then I thought I'm I'm going to do the five most magical um, barehanded plays. And then it was, oh, this is a good idea. This is actually a good idea. What if I intersperse these little lists of five magical things throughout the book? And and then they came pretty quickly. And it was like five funny plays and five uh, trick plays and five. Uh, long, you know, five uh, Titanic home runs, and 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 I thought this is this could work, and I can use these these moments. I don't write as much about them. I write they're they're much smaller, but they're smaller and pithier, and it, and it allowed me to go into places that I never would have been able to go if I really was just going with the hundred you know most magical moments, and. I really like that. So I'm thrilled that that, that you like that because that is yeah, it's, it's, that to me is what sort of took this book into a different place from any other list book that I've ever done, the baseball and hunter or anything else, is is this and I'm actually I'm actually doing this again with my football book that'll come out next year and and it works in some ways it works even better in football, which I'll I don't want to get into too much because I'm in the middle of writing it. I but, can picture it, though. Uh, yeah, I can picture it. But it's great. It. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. And like you said, it got different things in the book. Like you got a league of their own in the book through the five. You know what right. I mean? And, you know, that probably wouldn't be wouldn't be in otherwise. Um, there's so many great moments. I was like thinking of some of them, the, the, the um, game seven of the 91 World Series is in yes. here uh, with Jack Morris. Insisting he he wasn't coming out. What a battle that was in general! Like what a World Series when you think back oh. to it. Um, and it's crazy too that both teams were in last place in 1990. You know, and then they yeah. Bo- yeah they both are first place teams in '91, and they put on one of the all time shows in the World Series. Um, there's also the 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 we will see you tomorrow night part two um, in yes. St. Louis where the poor. Texas Rangers, what, two different times had the Cardinals <laughs> to their last strike, uh, couldn't close it and didn't win it. We'll see if they maybe can get one this year. They're in the mix this year again, finally. Um, yes. So many great moments like that. 
Um, how important was the order to you? Um, and ultimately, how did you decide as you got like to the 10? Did you know what was going to be one? Did it kind of flow to that direction? How did you kind of play with the order itself? Um, the order is important to me. I, I think the order is very, it's, I think, and I mean, look, the book's not going to be out for another couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll see how people respond. I think people respond very differently to this order than they did to the baseball 100. Um, and, and should, like, I think the baseball 100, the order was for, for many people, you know, the top thing, right. Like they wanted to argue right. about yep. whether, you know, this player should be here, here, here. I don't think the, I mean, I'm, I hope that people do. I'd love for people to go like, how could you rank the shot heard around the world so low? Like I would love for people to do that. I think that would be really fun. I don't think people are as passionate about, um, that's probably arguing right. which moments are greater. I don't, and, and, and I knew that when I was writing it, but I still liked the idea of the, of the, of the ranking because I, one, I, I thought it allowed me to really sort of heighten, um, certain moments. Like, I think there are moments in this book that I rank in the top 10, 15 that, you know, might not be in somebody else's. And, and, and this way I can really, you know, say that I really think one of the 10 greatest moments of baseball history, for example, is the Satchel Page, uh, a Josh Gibson matchup in the, in the New Girlies World Series of 42. Like, I think, you know, that's one of the greatest moments of baseball history. And if I rank that, you know, if I put that in there anywhere else, it's fine. You know, I'm, the, the whole point is to tell the story. But by ranking it, you know, number 10 or, or, you know, which I think where I have it, um, I'm able to sort of give that a little extra, uh, a little extra push. And there are other moments that I think are not as, as magical as, as maybe they have been portrayed. And so those are a little bit lower. So there was, there was definitely a thought behind it. And then when I get all the way up to, to the top five, that changed quite a bit. Throughout the process, which yeah. I did not, which I did not think it would. I thought like there are in my mind, like when I was doing the, the, the baseball 100, like the top 10 was kind of the easiest part to rank. I mean, yes, who you rank number one, who do you rank number two? I mean, yeah, obviously the, the whole Babe Ruth versus Willie Mays thing was, was something I had to talk about a lot and, and loved talking about a lot. Um, but I, I knew who the players were going to be. Right. The the top ten here, because of the way I did the the, the book, I really I really was able to, to have a lot of fun with it and 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 go go off the deep end on on moments that I thought like, hey, I think this is one of the five greatest moments of baseball history. And then when it got to number one, I wanted it to be really really special and. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a moment that everybody will assume is the number one moment in baseball history. And I put it at number two instead of number one. And there's a very specific reason that people will see when they read the book. And, um, and I really love the way that ends. I, I, you know, that, that to me, when I, when I made that decision where I was like, okay, cause I originally had the moment at number one that everybody would suspect it's going to be. I'm not going right. to say it. Everybody knows yep. who it, what it is. Right. Mm. But I had that at number one and I'm like, you know, this is, it's, it's the right answer. It's the, it's, and then I thought, you know what? It's not the right answer. There's a, there's a moment 
even greater because because of a very very specific reason, which is that I think that the that the moment everybody thinks is the greatest moment in baseball history led to what I think is the greatest moment in baseball history. So, uh, so that was really, really a fun way to end the book. And, and, uh, and I hope that'll give kind of a little bang, uh, to people. I, I love great. I love fun endings. Uh, there are two terrific, uh, in my mind stories that end this book. And, uh, and I'm, I, I love that. I love the way that ends. And I think you make a pretty loud, <laughs> a loud um, but subtle statement about what you think of the steroid era too um, and with the book in general. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is, this comes to the heart of, I look, I've, I've been on this show. I've talked about this. Yep. I think ba- that Barry Bonds should be in the hall of fame. I think Roger Clemens should be in the hall of fame. I think that their careers should be judged for what they were. Uh, and and that what they did from a steroid perspective should add to the context of what their careers are like. That said, this book is called Why We Love Baseball, and I'm not uh, 100% sure that Barry Bonds hitting 73 home runs is why we love baseball. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's important, I think. There is, there is some Barry Bonds stuff in this book, and, and I, people, I'm going to be very interested to see how people respond to it. Um, there is Mark McGuire stuff in this book. There's Sammy Sosa stuff in this book. There, you know, the, some of the, some of the steroid stuff, there's actually some Roger Clemens in this book, although not probably in, in putting him in the best light. Um, right. (laughs) But, but, but that was my guiding, my guiding principle. My guiding principle was, is this a moment that really, really expresses why we love baseball? And look, seeing Barry Bonds hit bombs into the water in San Francisco, yes, on the one hand, it's why we love baseball. And yes, on the other hand, it's sort of like, yeah, but how was it real? Was it authentic? Uh, you know, what what did he actually do to make that happen? It, it just it just clouds so much of of what's happening. And, and uh, to me, it doesn't detract. I mean, it, it does detract. But it doesn't change the fact that he's the all-time home run leader. He's the greatest player I've ever seen. But um, it does – It when you're writing from a perspective of why we love baseball, it sort of changes the the sort of tone and narrative of, of the way you write about it. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I loved how Mr. October, Mr. November was together. I uh, really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the Mr. No- yeah. The Mr. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say two of my favorite chapters, which yeah. is funny because I'm kind of well known for being kind of an anti anti Yankees guy. Um, but I I really really uh, enjoyed the Mister October chapter because I kind of made a discovery in that chapter um, of how he really was named Mister October, which I did not know uh, did before I. I, I wrote the book. Yep, neither did I. And then that was really cool, the really really fun to me. And then Mister November is you know. It's it's the single most sort of spine tingling moment of my entire career. Those in two many days ways. in general, yeah. Those it's just incredible, incredible, and uh, and so you know, so I wrote about that. That was that's what I mean in in a lot of ways about this being so personal. Um, that's a very personal story, my Mister November story. I remember that 
that the, the first home run, I think Tino Martinez was first, right? So right. I, I remember what, like I was just sitting on the edge of my like the end of my bed yeah. uh, in my bedroom and like getting ready to turn it off and think like, wow, the one time I would have really wanted the Yankees to win, you know, and they're going to be down because they're about to be down three one. That's right. And when he hit that home run, I was like, this is like Kirk Gibson again, I think, because yeah. I can't believe that just happened. Like, I yeah. just can't believe it. And then the fact that it happened the next day again, it's still – I just showed my daughter those home runs. She's um, seven years old, and um, I just showed her them. And she, she her observation was, Dad, were the people scared that the stadium was going to break? And I didn't know <laughs> what she meant at first. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, the whole thing is shaking. Yeah. Yeah, and I was it like, was, "It's a good point." <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it was totally shaking. It was. I've never, you know, I've I've been lucky. I've been in a lot of incredible places, but I I've never been in a place that was more electric than after Tino hit the home run, but particularly after Jeter hit the home run to win it. Yeah, uh, it was. You know, I mean, as I talk about in the story, as you remember, I mean, that's that's nine eleven. That's yeah. you know. Everything is still so raw. Everything is so raw, and particularly, obviously, in New York, but all over the country, it's so raw. And and that moment, you know, it's uh, it's it's why we love baseball. I mean, it's it's right there. I still can't believe that they didn't win with Rivera in the ninth in Game Seven, right? Yeah. Like, I, and it's such a weird inning too. Like, they don't get a really a solid hit the whole inning, right? I mean, he throws nope. one away. Um, and I always, I still always wonder why, I mean, I understand you bring the infield in, but I just wonder, like, that's how all the hits against him are. Like, yeah. I'd be more worried about the ball landing where it did than the ball landing somewhere where I need the infield in, I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a risk and you have the, the greatest you know, bat breaker in the history of baseball yeah. on the mound, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk for sure. I mean, it's, but it's, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, what a, you know, what that, a series. That, yeah. What a, that, what a series. That's why we from, love baseball. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why we love baseball. Uh, the sports guests are here with Joe Piznanski, uh, who's been with us since the beginning. And, and like we said at the start of this interview, uh, many books together. This one, why we love baseball history in 50 moments is out September 5th, but available now. Uh, for pre-order, if you go to Joe's Instagram, you'll see he unboxed them yesterday. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I have the, uh, in my hand, I have the um, uncorrected proofs for limited distribution. <laughs> uh, but Joe now has in his hands, and which will be in all of ours, September 5th, the uh, the finished product. Is it still a thrill? It seemed like you were thrilled opening them yesterday. Absolute uh, thrill. Yeah. Absolute. It, 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 that doesn't change. That The feeling... Um, you know, when you're writing a book, especially a book like that, it's, it's so solitary and you're just in a room, the room that I'm in sitting, standing in right now, sitting in right now, you're just in a room and you're writing and a book like this is so much about, you know, I've got 20 stacks of papers around me and, and I'm letting my mind go. And it's, it's a very, I love it, but it's very solitary and you can't imagine it as you're writing like 
what it's going to look like and feel like when it actually comes out, you know, and that's, that's, that's the exciting part is so when the box comes uh, to your house and you know, it's the finished product and it's a beautiful book. It I is. Really, it's yeah. And it I looks great just, next to 100 too. Like they complement each other beautifully. They, they really, they, they knew what they were doing over at Dutton uh, publishing. They, they just made a beautiful book. So when you open it up and, and look at it and see your work, um, yeah, there's nothing like it. There's no feeling like that. Is there a moment 51? Is there like one that just quite didn't make? I know there's more than 50 technically in the book when you write the five. You know, but you know what I mean? Is there one? If, if you had to there put one moments, more in? Yeah, there are several moments that are not in the book that I actually wrote, okay. like fully wrote, which actually... Uh, if people, I, I, I'll just say this, if people pre-order the book, uh, they can actually get, I am going to be sending out a, uh, like a director's cut with uh, of moments that did not make the book. Oh, very they're, cool. They're fully written. They're, in fact, there was a moment um, that my friend Mike Shore, who wrote a chapter in this book, um, he wrote about Pedro's uh, Yankee game, his the famous... Uh, uh, Pedro, uh, what seventeen strikeout one okay, hit, yeah, uh, game, which is in the book because I wrote it, and then he wrote it, and I'm like, Mike, I'm not using your version of this <laughs> right. story. I wrote this already; it's my book. <laughs> but I, but I'm going to include that in there. That that is that is going to be included in the director's cut. Uh, so that's super fun. So people can actually uh, get the director's cut if they pre-order the book, and then they can come to my uh, my uh, site and uh, at joeposnansky.com just go to the uh, to my uh, my newsletter and uh, they can actually uh, sign up to get that director's cut uh, for the book uh, if they pre-order so yeah so there are several moments like that there is one moment that I to the very last minute was trying to get into the book because it is one of my all-time favorite moments I wrote about it extensively when it happened and that's the last uh, day of the 2011 season. Right, um, day 162. Just, I, I cited right. a good one about that. It was a cover story, I think. Yeah, that was yeah. that was such an incredible day. With the Rays um, and the Red Sox and yeah, all that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I was the one that were, I was writing for SI. Oh, was that your was story in SI? Yeah, that's my story, yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes um, sense. <laughs> but, but I love that moment so much, and I, it did not get in to the book. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I was saying to a friend of mine, um, how, you know, I just kills me that I didn't get that into the book. And, uh, and she said, uh, you know, that's why there are sequels. So, uh, so we can, we can, we can start with that, uh, uh, you know, for the next one. That's so funny. I'm like, yeah, there was an S article, a SI article about it. (laughs) What a dummy (laughs) talking to the guy who wrote the article. Um, (laughs) whoops. I will have to. I, I have to ask: Is there a uh, this guy promoted five of Poznanski books clauses to getting that extra <laughs> extra stuff? Do I, well, can I qualify that way to get the? Uh... We 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 will get you the extra okay. stuff. No All right, question good. about it. All right, beautiful. Um, couple more, and I'll let you go. Uh, I was thinking, um, I do this YouTube show called Three by Five, and it's three lists of five, one sports, and I was thinking a good list might be. My top five baseball moments that didn't make Poznanski's book. That could be a good one to do when um, 
when it comes out to help promote it a little bit more. That might be fun. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I was. I, th- that. I think probably the one that sticks out is the Justice Home Run, but that's just because I'm a Braves fan, you know. So, and it's, I think it's an interesting story too that you know he sort of shit on the fans that day or the day before. Yeah, I guess you know, and everyone he sort of became villain number one in Atlanta. And then, you know, I think that home run would be more if it wasn't the sixth inning, you know, but I think the fact that it was the sixth inning kind of hurts it a little bit because and and Glavin pitches. a one Yeah, that's right. And Glavin well, and, pitches a one hitter that the, day. So is it about Glavin right. or is it about justice? You know, too? Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the thing. It's like the, the thing, the thing that, that you have to think about with those uh, uh, early to mid 90s Braves is, uh, you know, they're they had so many moments, right? right I mean, yeah. like there, there. Yep. You, you mentioned the you mentioned the ninety one World Series. Yeah. Um, the walk off uh, Cabrera also, for Francisco Cabrera. The Cabrera, the, the yeah. Cabrera walk off, yeah. uh, Sid Bream slide. I yeah. mean, that's in the book. That's yep. one of the moments. So, so yeah. So it's it's tough to it's tough to get all of those incredible Braves. Right. Uh, and once you put uh, Cabrera in, too, you kind of covered the era. You know what I mean? Like yeah. And then yeah. and the Cabrera one is the. I think undisputed number one of that era for them. I think I think it has to be just because I mean in a lot of ways, and I talk about this in the story uh, in the essay that I write about it. Um, in a lot of ways, that is that is the singular moment, kind of in baseball history, because it was two outs, ninth inning, bases loaded. So it was like one way or another that game was going to. I mean, it obviously could have tied, but right. one way or another that that game was decided that at bat they strike him out pirates win go to the world series he gets the hit braves win they go to the world series there's no other moment quite like that in in baseball history even shot heard around the world the game you know was was uh you know it, it was a different situation there were there weren't there weren't even two outs in that inning when he hit the home run uh the kirk gibson home run was first uh game of the world series like yep. joe carter was game six i mean so all of these incredible moments um, are not quite like that. The game was tied when Bill Mazeroski hit the home run. So tied in, when it got so by Buckner. Ways, it was tied when it got by Buckner. It was right? tied when yeah. it got by Buckner. Exactly. They'd already scored the tying run, um, and it was Game Six. So everything about that was um, was decisive. The the, the Cabrera Supreme play, was and decisive. also the end of Bonds' career as a Pirate. I mean, that's his last act as a pirate, that's right? right? Is that throw? That's right. And it's still amazing to me that Barry Bonds did not throw out Sid Bream. I mean, yeah, that... one of the great, one of the great defensive left fielders in baseball <laughs> yeah. history, and one know? of the slowest uh... human beings in the history of Major League <laughs> Baseball at that point of his career, right? Like, I, and that's another one. And this is what, and this is what I think that the what makes this book better, right? I know exactly where I was when that happened. You know, I was in the yeah. common room of the upstairs of my house. My mom had just gotten home from work at the start of that inning and sat down and watched it with me. You know, it was just the two of us. And, um, you know, that's what's great. Like, every every moment that I was alive for in this book, pretty much, I know exactly where I was when that happened. Yeah. And I think that's why it's great. Again, it's Why We Love Baseball, A History in 50 Moments by Joe Poznanski. It comes out September 5th pre-order and definitely do the pre-order thing so that you can go to the website and get the extra stuff i mean if there's ever been a better reason to pre-order i don't know it um and then i want to ask you two small things outside of the book and i'll let you go real quickly first one do you have any thoughts on um the 2023 braves at all 
Um, they just won six of seven against the New York teams. They absolutely mashed the ball. If you look one to nine, I think 19 home runs is the least they have in one of those spots. Um, but they make me as a fan very nervous. I think if Max Free does not pitch a very good game, game one of the NLDS, they could get picked off like they did last year. Um, their pitching has been very erratic as starters. And it seems like when the starters are good, the bullpen isn't as good. When the bullpen is good, the starters aren't as good. They make me nervous, but they're like the best team of my lifetime as a fan. So I was just curious if you had any perspective on them that you could share with me to sort of uh, calm me down. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can calm. You, I don't know if I can calm you down. <laughs> everything you said is 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 one hundred percent how I feel. Uh, I just wrote a piece where I said that you know, then obviously the pace has to stay, keep up to what it is. But you can make an argument right now that this is the greatest lineup in baseball history, yes. uh, or, at least, or at least a lineup having the greatest season right. in baseball history. Fair. I mean, they're yep. slugging 500 as a team. I mean, it's it's mind boggling how good this lineup has been this year. So, you know, I, I obviously you're going to be nervous. You know, the injuries to the pitching staff have not helped, uh, and and you know, the, there's always the fear. That pitching is going to fall apart. That said, they're the best team in baseball. They're the best lineup of, uh, that I've seen. You know, I mean, I think it's them and maybe the 2019 Astros and the 2003 2004 Red Sox and and I mean those are you know the the 1990s Cleveland uh, you know Manny Ramirez teams. Those we're talking about one of the great great lineups in baseball history, and they've got you know, pretty good starting pitching if if those guys – I mean, Max Fried is, is fantastic. And so, he's been good since he came back, too, to be fair. Like, yes. He has been strong, which I was worried about. Kyle Wright still might come back, although I'm not sure about that. You know what I mean? I have a bad feeling we won't see him back. But they keep saying he's going to be back, so I, I guess they know better than me. Uh, I'm just being a pessimistic fan. But well, uh, no, I mean, and I mean, you have to you have to be worried because, like, you, the, it, the way things work uh, in baseball, it's not about the regular season anymore. Yeah, and it's I worry about playoffs. being home run dependent in the playoffs. I don't know though. That this yeah. team, this team, they mash. Just, I know they mash. They mash. I, I mean, they they I lead know. the league in batting average and on base percentage too. I mean, they're they're utterly fantastic. And and you know, look, I obviously uh, you, there's always worries, but. I'm okay going with Spencer Strider, Max Fried, and Charlie Morton into the playoffs. I, I'm not. I'm not too worried about that. They're the best team. That doesn't mean they're going to the World Series, but they go into the playoffs as the best team. Right. And there is the advantage now with you know being off. You don't have to play in that extra series. You can get reset your you know your staff or we'll, we'll see. Uh, right. Very last thing, as a dad of a daughter and uh, someone who's always looked up to you. As a dad of older daughters, so you're sort of ahead of the game from me, and um, I've you've always been very open about your relationship with your daughters and your columns, and I've been able to read and and all about it. You you wrote a beautiful, uh, I thought, thing about Taylor Swift and um, the experience of Taylor Swift and all that. Uh, I, my the Taylor Swift is coming to Toronto for six shows. And, oh, wow. And uh, it's I don't know. It's like in 2024 sometime, like November right. of 2024. Uh, but when my wife came to me and said, uh, do you think we should take Paula to this? All I thought about was your column. I said, yes, you should take her. Uh, 
You know what I mean? Because that's definitely something they would do together. Uh, but I don't think it seems like, and it's also Matt Crossman, who used to write for the Sporting News and is a freelance guy now, wrote about his experience. Um, and there's been other sports writers too. She's got something. She's There's some kind of magic to it. Right, like I've lived through Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey or whatever pop star you want to mention. This feels different. I was just curious if you want to talk for a minute or two before I let you go about that experience with your, you know, just living that with your daughter and, and, and you know, anything yeah. you want to add about that. Because it just, it touched me, like I said, as a father of a daughter. Well, you know, both of my daughters grew up with her uh, mm-hmm. and, and now both of my daughters, uh, my, my younger daughter is going off to college this week. Uh, wow. My older daughter is already in college. Aww. So, so, you know, so there's a very emotional attachment. Yes. I'll be I thinking about you. That's tough. To all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but Taylor Swift is just, I mean, she's, she's incredible. I mean, the show is incredible. She's incredible. The attachment that Katie, my younger daughter in particular has to Taylor Swift is very similar to the attachment all of her friends have and and all of the people she's meeting going to college have they all you know it's it's what they share and you know i remember you know when i was in high school i mean it was it was madonna and and it was right, michael madonna. jackson yep. and yep. and it was you know obviously um and and we cared a lot about them i mean and and we we loved the music and and they were obviously enormous stars but the connection wasn't the same. Not not like not like. I mean, of course, there were people who dressed up like Madonna and, and wore the the white the glove, white glove. Like, yeah. like Michael. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but it wasn't like this. Like this is every single thing that is Taylor Swift. My daughter is fascinated by. Uh, she's she's utterly into. And then we went to the show, and you know, look, it cost what it cost, and I had to I had to sit in a computer for eight hours to get those tickets. Um, <laughs> and then we got to the concert and it was everything that I had hoped it would be. I mean, it's, it was, first of all, it's an, it's, it was an incredible extravaganza. I mean, it's three, it was three and a half hours of nonstop. I mean, which is just unreal. It's, right. I mean, it's Springsteen like, right. Uh, y- young Springsteen, not sure. today Springsteen. Right. Yeah. Um, it's spectacular. She, she's very, very, personal on stage she talks a lot about what the fans mean to her what what the opportunity means to her she she you know is is constantly uh and i'm sure some of it is performance but she's constantly amazed at the the response people have and and she's very touched by it it's clear that she's very touched by it and there it's like the wall comes down between i mean she's this mega star that none of us are ever going to meet or know or whatever, but you go see her at a show, even in a gigantic, we saw her in Kansas city at, at Arrowhead stadium. And, and, uh, and it was, you know, us and 75,000 of our closest friends. Right. But it's like the walls come down. People are trading the bracelets and there it's a community. Everybody's trading bracelets. Everybody's dressed up. Everybody's dressed up. I had, I wore uh, like a, like a kind of pink uh, shirt, um, and and I had people coming up to me 
all over the place to talk about how it was exactly the right color to wear because <laughs> she had just she had just released Taylor's version and and it was the right like it was it's 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 unlike anything. It's a phenomenon, yeah. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. And she's she's like remarkable in 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 so many ways that uh uh yeah, I mean it's a look, it's a tough ticket. It's an expensive ticket. I would never tell anybody to to spend money uh, we, we are, we're all, we're all, uh, we're all saving. Right. But yeah. what I will say without hesitation is if you spend the money, it's worth it. That's, that's what I would say. What I would tell anybody is like, Hey, I don't know that it's right for you or whatever, but I will promise you that if you take your daughter to the show, she'll have the time of her life and something she'll never forget. It's that's good. That, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. And that's what we're always searching for as parents, right? We just want to give our kids that feeling i think right right yeah that's why we spend all the money on disney world or whatever it is yeah right we're always chasing that real quickly did was there a resolution does your daughter have a football team so uh not not exactly we ended up (laughs) adopting the chiefs last year which is kind of smart smart and (laughs) and kind of a cop-out but but we you know we she did at least vaguely grow up in Kansas right. City. Yeah. And of course, that's what I, I feel most connected to. So it, it made sense. And obviously, they won the Super Bowl and it was and it was great. And my other daughters already was a giant Chiefs fan uh, going back for a while. So so it made sense. But I don't know that it fully took being honest. Uh, we you know, we explored a bunch of different teams. We went to Chicago, watch a Bears game yeah. um, and, and did other things like that. I don't know that it completely took, and now there's sort of a. Should we go back and try to watch the Browns more again? Should we go back because because Cleveland was obviously a big connection for us? But you had so to I walk away with Watson, just so people know. I walked yeah. away with Watson, yeah. and, and now I've been away for a year, and it's like, all right, is that is is it okay to go back and and sort of at least you know I'm at least curious how I would feel watching the Browns? So, Give it a try. So yeah. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna kind of go back and and at least uh, explore. Uh, what feelings are left for for the Browns? I bring that up last because I encourage you to join the Substack where he Joe chronicled this. It's uh, the Substack and YouTube are the same. Joe Piznanski. Uh Twitter and Instagram is Jay Piznanski. Um and of course the book one more time: Why We Love Baseball: A History in Fifty Moments. And I'll say this about the Substack because again, there's so many subscriptions, right? Like. It started out where people were cutting the courts, like, well, I could pay nine ninety nine, and then now it's like, yeah, nine ninety nine for that and twelve ninety nine for it. You right. know, it's crazy the subscriptions. But if you don't have it and you have room for one more, no subscription you own, word for word, could possibly match <laughs> the 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 output that uh, Joe puts into his Substack. So if you're looking for value in terms of penny to word. <laughs> I promise there isn't a better one on Substack uh, than than Joe Piznanski, which is the 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 handle on that one. So probably Substack.com slash Joe Piznanski uh, would be the way to find it. Anything else you want to mention or promote? I know I kept you a little bit long. Apologies about that. No, no, this would be great, and and I'm super excited for the book to come out. I, of course, would love for people to come and check out the Substack. Um, but this is all good. And shout out to Jennifer, the world's uh, number one assistant yes. of all time, who, again, I emailed her and within like 
I don't know. It seemed like 16 hours. I had the book somehow. You know what I mean? Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's she's great. She is the, absolutely great. Don't know how you. I mean, it's the top, it's, she's the top dog. I I got to give her a shout out every time. All right. Thank you. Thank you for everything. All these years, I appreciate you. Of course. Thank you. I would like to thank Joe Piznanski and Jackie Martling for being on this episode of the Sportscasters. Don't forget you can find this episode and all of the episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. Email the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at sportscasters. And please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The 24-inch podcast, also available on the Sportscasters feed on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Find out more information at 24-inch podcast on Twitter, at 24 underscore inch underscore podcast on Instagram. Email for more information, 24inchpodcast at gmail.com. And search on Facebook, 24-inch podcast, and join our group. Our next episode next week will be about the 2005 Royal Rumble, Hulk Hogan, Versus Shawn Michaels. And don't forget about my YouTube show, 3x5 with Steve Bennett. Ten episodes have been recorded and released on the North-South Connection YouTube page. Just search North-South Connection on YouTube. You'll find 3x5 right there. New episodes every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Please like, follow, comment, review, or send a fax for more. All right. One last thing from me today. Uh, I wanted to talk about baseball for a second. What would happen if the season ended today? Obviously, it's August. The dog days of summer are winding down, and in a few, you know, a few weeks, we'll be into the last month of the regular season. And uh, I thought it'd be a good time to sort of take a look and see what would baseball look like um, if the season ended today. Let's start with the Braves. Uh, the Braves had an unbelievable week playing the New York teams, right? It's like, why can't we just play the New York teams all the time? Um, that would be great because it was just a weekend of ass kicking. Uh, the Braves beat the Mets 21-3 to one game and then shut them out 6 nothing in a doubleheader. Took three out of four against the Mets. The Mets did win the fourth game. Six to five, and then they swept the Yankees, including uh, two games where the Yankees didn't get a run. I think they got three runs the whole series. So the Braves are rolling. They're pitching much better. They sort of seems like they worked out of their slump uh, that they had post All Star break. They're eight and two, you know, in their last ten games. So looking up there for sure. Uh, let's look at the standings a little bit in the National League. Uh, the Braves, the Dodgers, and the Milwaukee Brewers uh, lead those divisions. The Braves have a four-game lead on the Dodgers for the one seed in the National League. Um, and they have a 13-game lead on the Brewers uh, for a bye. So 
they should be in good shape to avoid uh, the DS. The Braves, or the, the wild card round, the Braves and the Dodgers both should should be okay there. Uh, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and the Cubs are the top three for the, in three wild card spots right now. But the Cubs are actually tied with the Reds and the Marlins. So it's technically a three-way tie for that last spot with Arizona one game out. A little bit further out, the Dodgers and the Mets uh, five and seven games out of the third spot. But with that many teams ahead of them, I think you can probably say goodbye uh, to them. The playoff picture as it is right now in the National League is you would have the Braves on a bye, the Dodgers on a bye, the Brewers. The Brewers would play the Cubs, and the Philadelphia Phillies would face the San Francisco Giants. That would be the National League playoffs if the season ended today. Kind of some interesting um, numbers here. I was looking at run dif- differential. The Braves are plus 208. And um, the next highest in the in the uh, National League is plus 147 uh, for the Dodgers. The Brewers, who lead the NL Central by two games over the Cubs and the Reds, are minus five. The Cubs have the best run differential of the three. They're plus 63. All right, let's look at the American League now, uh, where we find the Baltimore Orioles in first place of the American League East at 74 and 47. Uh, then we have the Texas Rangers 72 and 49 in the AL West. And then you have the Minnesota Twins 63 and 59 in the weak central division of the American League. The wild card as of right now would be Tampa Bay, Houston, and Toronto who has a half a game lead over the Mariners a three-and-a-half game lead over the Boston Red Sox, and a fading Yankees team who's now 60-61, and 61, uh, the first time under 500 at this point of the season, I believe since 1995. Uh, they're six-and-a-half games out of the wild card. They're all but done. They're not done, but they're, they're close. Uh, if the season ended today, uh, we would have uh, Baltimore and Texas on a bye. And then uh, Minnesota would play Toronto uh, and Tampa Bay would play Houston. So Tampa and Houston would be a really good uh, wild card round there. Uh, Some notes about the standings in the American League. Let's check some run differential there like we did in the National League. Uh, Who leads the way here? Tampa Bay um, is plus 145 in second place. Baltimore, plus 58. Texas leads the league at plus 195 and is second overall behind only the Braves. Uh, Of the potential playoff teams, um, it looks like they're all in the positive uh, run differential. That wouldn't be the case in the National League as as of right now. Um. Well, as of right now, if Miami were to be the one of the three teams tied, uh, they have a negative differential. But playoffs are getting closer. October's getting closer. Uh, the Braves, by the way, I don't think I mentioned it, but their record right now 
um, is an unbelievable 78 and 42, uh, which just baffles me. 650 baseball. 650 baseball. Unbelievable. Their expected win loss on the year is 106 and 56. Essentially, the pace they're on, which is one game ahead of Texas, 105 and 57. Uh, that's according to MajorLeagueBaseball.com. The Braves are also 45, 40 and 25 against teams over 500. Uh, Baltimore, 40 and 30. Uh, but the Braves have the best record in the major leagues against teams over 500 as well. So we're getting closer. Baseball playoffs are right around the corner. It's one of my favorite things. I love the fall. Uh, we'll have football. We'll have baseball playoffs. Hockey will start. Basketball is having some kind of a tournament in the beginning of their season. And uh, this uh, this weekend, Calcio is back uh, as Serie A will begin uh, their quest for the Scudetto. Rest in peace, Rick Jenneret. You're loved. We'll miss you.